Parsha in my life class. Um, we are, this class this week has been dedicated. Someone has, no, 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 yeah. Someone should shut that because or else I'll, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's working. If you shut that, that'll be good. Thank you. So tonight's shear has been sponsored by Tal Berkowitz. And this is in honor of her, first of all, a big mazel tov on her engagement at her chassan. Isaac, Mazel Tov and Mazel Tov, should be a binyan adeyad, only, only good things, very special. And also, uh, this is in honor of her grandmother's yard site. Yard site is tonight, Chavdala Tevis, Tzipora Bas Levi. May your neshama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May she shower you with abundance of blessings, especially in honor of your great new beginning as you start your life together, Be'ezus Hashem, very soon. So may all her blessings and her prayers be there for you. And uh, your simcha should lead us into the Geula, Amitis Vashleim, and the complete redemption, the ultimate marriage of Hashem and the Jewish people. Amen. What? No, the air conditioner is not on. It's just a little cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The air is not on. Actually, I had the heat on until a few minutes before this year when I was getting on there. Okay, I get, I get very hot when I'm teaching. So maybe I'll warn you. Maybe I'll warn you. Hopefully, hopefully. Okay. Okay. So tonight is a very special night. Um, it's Chavdala Tevis. It's the yard site of the Alter Rebbe, Shneir Zalman of Liadi, who we study from this podium, from this seat over here, literally thousands and thousands of hours of his teachings every Thursday night for so many years. So his light radiates over here in a very special way, in a very deep way, and may he shine upon all of us his great light and his great blessing. I'd like to speak about some things which I feel are very strongly related to his yard site, especially this year. I touched upon it this past Shabbos by the Kiddush over here at Ma'an Yisrael, and I want to elaborate on some of what has been spoken and connecting it to this week's parsha, Parsha's Ve'era. Okay. So the parsha we have the parsha. The parsha deals with the makis, the plagues that Hashem brought upon the Egyptians. And the end of the parsha we have, like every week, we have the haftorah. So the haftorah is a, tra- a chapter of Navi that relates to the portion. This time it's from Sefer Yecheskel, Ezekiel. So in Sefer Yecheskel, it describes the gist of the haftorah is really two parts. Or the main part of the haftorah is a prophecy that the Eibushter sends to Yecheskel Hanavi 
that he should prophesize on the fall of Mitzrayim, how Egypt is going to be destroyed. Egypt is going to be completely decimated. This is not talking about Egypt that was decimated in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu when we went out of Egypt. This is talking about a later fall of Egypt, many, many years later, after, during the time of the destruction between the first temple and the second temple. That's when Egypt had, Nebuchadnezzar went to war against Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed the Beis Amigdash, went to war against Egypt and destroyed Egypt, lay Egypt to ruins. And as the, the Navi says, Egypt will be laid desolate for, 50, for 40 years. And even when it will be rebuilt again and the people will come back, it will always remain a humiliated kingdom. It will never return to its previous glory. I guess that was the end of what we know as ancient Egypt with all of its power and all of its strength. And Egypt is Egypt. It's nothing uh, too exciting today and uh, has never regained its glory as we find stated explicitly in the Haftorah. The relationship of that Haftorah to this week's parsha, the parsha's Ve'era, is obviously clear because in the parsha we're also talking about the destruction of Egypt in a much earlier time, the fall of Mitzrayim through the Makis that Hashem brought through Moshe Rabbeinu as Mitzrayim was defeated. And that's the connection between that Haftorah and this Haftorah as it's explained in the Levush, or the great halachic uh, authority where he explains the connection of the Haftorah to the parsha. There's something else that's right at the beginning of the Haftorah, even before it begins with the prophecy regarding the fall of Egypt. It's talking about Kibbutz Goliath, the regathering of the Jewish people coming to Eretz Yisrael. Um, I think it's referring to not the final Kibbutz Goliath, which we're talking about is about to happen, or maybe to some degree has begun already. We're not talking about that, but we're talking about, um, I think, the return of the Jewish people after the Babylonian exile, after the story of Purim, when Koresh gave permission for the Jewish people to return to Eretz Yisrael and rebuild the Beis Amigdash. That's the opening of the Pasuk. And over there it says, I will become sanctified for the eyes of the nations by this that I've helped my people. By this that the Jewish people will settle the land that I've given to Yaakov. And here as well, um, the Haftorah, this part of the Haftorah is also connected to Parshas Ve'era because in Parshas Ve'era it talks about Hashem says, I will, take, I will take the Jewish people out. It's two things. There is the fall of Egypt, the punishment of Mitzrayim, and there's also the extraction of the Jewish people. It doesn't happen in the Parsha yet, but we have the promise of Hashem, the four promises of Geula that Hashem says, I will take you out of Egypt, bring you to the land of Israel. So that's the connection of the two. The interesting thing is that the last Psukim, the last Pasuk of the Haftorah, the last Pasuk of the Haftorah is, um, oh, now, I'll stop for a moment. The Haftorah continues and says, after it talks about the destruction of Mitzrayim, and why is Mitzrayim going to have such a big punishment? It's important to know. Why is Egypt going to be punished at that point? The Pasuk ascribes to it, the reason is because they were a false hope for the Jewish people. They seem to have promised the Jewish people that they would defend them, that the Jews, Jewish people would need, they would come to their defense against Sancherev and later against Nebuchadnezzar. So the Jewish people put their hopes in Egypt and they didn't put their hopes in God. And Egypt in the end did not even keep well on their promise. So the Pasuk says, because you were a fake uh, support, it says you were a, you were mishenes kone. You were a support of a reed. A reed is not too good to support on. It's not a very hard tree. If you want to lean on a reed, 
A reed is a softer thing. So you lean on it for a little bit and then it will crack and it will break. So Hashem is punishing the Tzrayim because they were a false hope for the Jewish people and the problem with it is too hopeful. Number one, Jews didn't rely on Hashem, they relied on Egypt. Number two, Egypt itself did not, did not, they did not come through on their support. So therefore, because of that, Hashem is going to punish Egypt. Um, what was the punishment? The punishment was that Hashem caused them to go out to war. The Pasuk describes Egypt as a people and Paro of Egypt, people who believed very much in their own power, people that as ascribed all their success to their own genius, to their own abilities. And as I discussed last week in the parsha, it's related to the very idea that Mitzrayim was a country that by its very nature is not dependent much on, on something that you have to raise your eyes up to Hashem like rainwater. Eretz Yisrael is a place, Israel is a land where a, a person who wants to be sustained, wants God's blessings, or needs blessings, needs to turn because he, without rain, all the work and all the toil you do is in vain. Nothing will bring. So you have to pick up your eyes to heaven constantly to someone or to, you know that your success is not in your own hands. You have to turn to a higher power. That's just life in Israel and in other countries that are dependent on rainwater. Mitzrayim had this powerful Nile River, and that was the reason why one can deny Hashem completely. We discussed it at great length last week. So the Pasuk describes Paro as being the big crocodile of the Nile, who claims that he is independent, doesn't need God. The Nile is mine, Vaniasis Sani, and I created myself, and I created my whole fortune and my whole life. Everything I have is due to my own, my own, my own uh, uh, doings or my own success. And that is the reason why the Abishter threatens and says, what am I going to do to you? I'm going to pull you out. He compares him like to a, I'm going to put something on your mouth and I'm going to pull this big fish out of, the, of, the, of that secure place, the Nile that you're so secure in. Together with you, all the fish are going to get stuck on your scales. What does that mean? The fish are all the other Egyptians. Paro is the king, the big fish the big crocodile, and on his scales, all the other fish will get stuck as I pull you out, and I will throw you into the desert. When I will throw you into the desert, you're not going to have any more the Nile, and you will die. And you will be the food for all the animals that will come and just and will devour you. This is the idea that Hashem caused Egypt to go to war against the Vuchanetzar, and over there they were completely massacred. All of, all of Egypt, nothing was left of them, of the army. And then Hashem says Egypt will remain desolate for 40 years. That's the thing. But then Hashem turns to Nebuchadnezzar and Hashem is telling the Navi, Yechezkel, why Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the one who is going to merit to get the spoils of Egypt. Because Nebuchadnezzar needs to be rewarded. Because Nebuchadnezzar did something. He destroyed the, the, the city of Tzur. And the city of Tzur, by God's plan, needed to be destroyed, I guess because of their atrocities, because of their evil. Nebuchadnezzar, it costed him a lot. It was a very, very, very difficult war for Nebuchadnezzar. He spent a lot of money and a lot of military might in this battle, and he didn't gain anything for whatever reason. So God says, I need to pay Nebuchadnezzar, so his payment for his efforts in that war is that he's going to get the spoils of Egypt and he's going to become very wealthy based on that. That's the Haftorah. Then finally, the conclusion is, the Abishter says, on that day, I'm going to 
sprout forth a karen, a horn. Over here it means a, a power of uh, victory for the Jewish people. And to you, Yecheskel Anavi, Etain, I will get, I will give Pischein Peh. I will give an opening of your mouth. Besaycham amongst them. The Yaduki Ani Hashem, they will know that I am God. To you, Yecheskel, I will give you an open mouth. What is the idea that the Abishter is saying? So, what is this referring to? So, this is also referring to the time of Kibbutz Goliath when Hashem is going to reward the Jewish people. But the main idea that the Abishter says to Yecheskel, I will give you a Pischen Peh, an opening of your mouth. Rashi and the other Mephoshim say, What's your opening of your mouth? Because it will be proven that your prophecies are true. It will finally be proven that when you prophesize, because not everybody accepted Yecheskel as a Navi. So now it's going to be finally accepted, and everybody will see that you're a prophet, because everything will see that whatever you said came true, and that's the Pischein Peh, the opening of your mouth. So the question is, does this last line of Yecheskel Navi having a Pischein Peh relate somehow also to the parasha or not? This that Yidin will know, the Yadu, who will know? This is not referring to the nations, referring to the Jewish people. The Yadu Kiani Hashem, that I am Hashem. It's interesting that this year is Tavshin Pei. And from the beginning of the year, we were talking about all the meaning and significance of Tavshin Pei 5780. One of the things I mentioned, it should be Shnas Pischoin Peh. The, 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 the Pei means a mouth. It should be the time of opening, opening our mouth. Where do we find opening our mouth? In Rosh Hashanah and Davening, we say, we say, God, you should give honor to your people. You should give praise to those who fear you. You should give good hope to those who hope for you. And an opening of the mouth. Uh, no. You should give a, a good hope to those who seek you. Pischein pen, an opening of mouth, lam yachlim loch, to those who are hoping and waiting for you. So when I see the words pischein peh over here, related to um, Parshas Va'era and the Haftarah, is there something about pischein peh relating to us? And how does this relate to Parshas Va'era, the idea of pischein peh? So let's go into the Parsha for a moment and see what is the point of the Makkas? What was the point of the Makkas? We have all these plagues. What was it? primarily the function of the plagues. Simply, on the simplest of levels, Hashem promised Avram Avinu that your children will be enslaved by, a na- by Eretz Lohlahem, in a land that's not theirs. Va'avadim ve'inu oisam, they will, they will enslave them, ve'inu oisam, they will inflict them, they will torture them for 400 years. But then Hashem says to Avram Avinu, v'gam esagoy asha ya'avoidu, and also the nation ya'avoidu that is going to enslave them, dona noichi, I'm going to punish them. So we have already a promise from way back then that Hashem says that the nation that's going to enslave the Jewish people are not off the hook. They are going to be punished. And here is the fulfillment of that punishment. So Mitzrayim Mitzrayim was beaten to a pulp. Literally, plague after plague after plague after plague. All to be able to, for Hashem to really to the fullest and completion punish the Egyptians to the full degree of punishment. And probably included in that is the fact that Hashem did not allow Paroi even in the end to do tshuva. Because when Paro would have caved in, when Paro on his own would have already succumbed because it was too much, Hashem kept on hardening his heart more and more and more so that Paro can end up getting the full brunt of God's, of God's judgment, the full punishment 
because of his horrific, um, uh, his, his uh, as it's, uh, the first time explained already, you know, if it was decreed already, it's not his fault, and they discussed already the idea, but Paro, uh, he needed to get his, what he deserved. And that's why his punishment was to the very end. That's the simple meaning we would say, the point of the Makkas, of the plagues. However, when you look in the Psukim, you see that there's another message attached to the Makkas, to all the plagues. The Pasuk keeps on repeating again and again and again and again. The, the, the phrase in these words or other words is something like this, V'yadu Mitzrayim ke'ani Hashem. That Egypt has to come to an, a knowledge or an understanding that God, that I am God. The Egyptians must recognize Hashem's authority, Hashem's power. Paro said, Lo as Hashem, I don't know God. And as we said earlier, Mitzrayim was a place that had zero relationship with Hashem. They didn't believe they have any, Hashem has any power over them. And therefore, Paro needed to come to a knowledge of God. Now it's interesting, Dabar Benel, when he speaks about Mitzrayim, says that Egypt had three, three, three elements of denial. Three things that they were kofar in, that they denied it. The first thing that they, they, they denied the existence of God. That's why Pari said, I don't know God. The very existence of God they denied. The second thing was that they, they denied Hashem's influence on the world, that God has power over the world. That's the second thing. There can be a God who's the originator of the creation, but once he created the world, the universe has, runs by its own power and Hashem doesn't have any any more interaction with the world that he created, which were many philosophers in the, in, the, in, the, in the early days who believed that there was an original power that generated it all, but he lost his, or doesn't, for, or he chose, or he chose for whatever reason, to disconnect from his creation. And thirdly, that that God has power, not just that he interacts with the world and relates to the world through the, the, the operation of nature, Maybe God does communicate with the world, but that he doesn't have any power to alter nature, to change the rules of the system. These are three things. Now Barbanel says that the Makis came to prove these three, these three dimensions, and he says, we look in the Agada, we find that the, the, the ten plagues are divided into three, three groups. We say it, Rabbi Yehuda would give Simonim, Tatzach, Adash, Ba'achav familiar with the Agad. The Tzach is Dom Tzvardeya Akinim, the first three plagues. Second three plagues are Adash, Oroiv, um, Dever, Shechin. And then you have uh, Ba'achav, um, uh, Barad, Arbe, Choshech, Makas Bechores, the last four. So he explains that the first three came to prove the existence of a God. Second three came to d d um, deliver the message that God is Mashgiach, Hashem is um, controlling and overseeing everything in the world. And the last four is coming to demonstrate God's ability to change the nature. Like you find by Barad, where you had fire and water working together. It was a total breaking of the laws of nature, and so on and so forth. Again, how he explains it is not for now. But in other words, the Makis came to explain or to reveal Hashem's authority and Hashem's power. Um, are these two connected? One explanation of the Makis. Now this idea uh, that, that the Makis are for Yadu Mitzrayim is repeated probably about 10 times. All my pink uh, 
pink little footnotes, or, I mean uh, markers over here. You have over here, let's start, in Pasuk Hay, in our Pasuk over here, Pasuk Hay, you have in Perek Zion, V'yodu Mitzrayim Kani Hashem, Egypt will know that I am God, V'netoisi as Yodi al Mitzrayim, when I have stretched out my hand on Egypt, that's one Pasuk. Then you have another verse in Perek Zion, further in Pasha's Ve'era, Koyamar Hashem, so says Hashem, Pasuk Yud Zion, so you will, with this you will know that I am God. Again, telling this to Egypt. With this you know that I am Hashem. Then we have again in Perekhes, also this parasha. So you will know that there's no one like our God. Then you have by the, by, further in the parasha, in Perekhes, Pasuk Yud Ches, Laman teida by the by by when, when there was no when when Hashem separated between the Jewish flocks and the Jewish land that there was no uh, wild beasts didn't come there and it only came in the Egyptian land. Laman teida kani Hashem of aretz that I am God in the midst of the land it means I control exactly where when and what the plague will come. It means it's not just the existence of God but I'm involved as we said earlier. And so again, there's so many psukim like this. This is where, when he's telling him about the, the, the plague of the hail, of the barad. You should know there's no one like me. So on and so forth. All the way through Parshas Bishalach, when it comes to Kriyas Yamsuf, Hashem keeps on saying, so the Yadu Mitzrayim, that Egypt will finally know that I am God. That's the pr- purpose of the Makkah. Now, how, how does this fit with what we said earlier? The, the Marcus came to punish the Egyptians. That, that's, that's the main purpose of the Marcus, to punish Egypt. And now we're saying it's so that they will know that there is a Hashem. It's, it's a teaching. It's a lesson. It's a lesson to teach them and the, the existence of a God. So on the simple level, you can say they're both really the same. Because in order for the punishment to be a punishment, it's not just enough that they're in pain, that they're aching, that they're hurting, but they have to realize why they're hurting. No, that's when it's a punishment. A punishment is only when they know it's because of what they did to the Jewish people. Because of the atrocities that they did to the Jewish people, that's why they're being punished. So it's important that they know that it's the God of the Jewish people, who is the God of the world, who's punishing them for what they did. So the two of them are connected. But it seems like, as we mentioned earlier, that there's almost like an idea onto its own, that there should be a knowledge that Egypt should know that, that I am Hashem. That is regarding the Makkas themselves. The same is also regarding something else that took place in Parshas Ve'era, another idea related to the Makkas, related to the plagues. And that is the idea that God hardened Paro's heart. That Hashem um, made Paro stubborn. As the Pasuk says clearly that Paro on his own would have already given in by the last five plagues. He was, would have given in and God did not allow him. Hashem literally manipulated his heart and made him not be able to control himself when he would have on his own caved in and that he had to say no. So, right? so over there too there is an argument. What's the purpose of that hardening of Paro's heart? Rambam in Hilchas Tshuva Rambam and the laws of Tshuva, Perek Vav. The Rambam writes that sometimes, because the Rambam is very bothered, the Rambam puts on a principle that one of the most fundamental ideas that a Jew, that a person needs to know in terms of, as a fundamental principle in life, is that you have to know that you have free choice. And that you're not born 
in a, in a manner that you must be a tzaddik, a, a righteous person, or God forbid that a person must be a Russian. A person could have certain tendencies to not good things, but it's, you're not predisposed. You're not, um, no one is decreed upon from above that they have to be wicked or that they have to be righteous. Everybody has free choice. So the Ramam has a hard time when you come to Parsha's Ve'era uh, and these Psukim, where it says that Hashem is playing with Parah's heart. That means God is not allowing him. Here we say we have free choice. So the Ramam says that sometimes a person sins so much that the punishment for their sin, in other words, they went, their sin was so great that their punishment for that sin is that God that God takes away from them the possibility of doing tshuva because they deserve, they don't deserve to have that chance of doing tshuva. That's how far their corruption went. And they deserve to be completely, you know, to, 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 Hashem wants to make sure that they will be punished and they will not exit at the last minute by doing tshuva. So Hashem, and that itself is a punishment from Hashem. And He brings the example of Paro. So according to that, the idea of Paro's heart, hardening of Paro's heart, is all a continue. It's all the idea, as we said earlier. It's all. It's also the same. It's just about punishing. Paro needs to be punished, as we mentioned earlier. The Sefarnu, that's Ramba. The Sefarnu learns similar to the idea that we said earlier that there's two explanations regarding the Makis. One is to punish Paro, and the other one is to make Mitzrayim know God's power. So the Sephardim actually says the reason Hashem hearted his heart is actually to make Paro and Mitzrayim do a complete tshuva. The opposite of Rambam is in order to bring Paro to a complete tshuva. Why? He says if Paro would have let the Jewish people out when the pressure became just unbearable, so then there wouldn't be any tshuva on his part. He wouldn't have any regret. He just can't continue in his ways. God is twisting his arm. He would remain a, a rebel. He would remain satisfied with, with all of his bloodshed, with all of the monstrous acts that he's done. Just now, he can't continue it, but he wouldn't have done tshuva. Oh, so what does Hashem do? Hashem did not allow him to cave in when he was, when he was in unbearable pain already. Hashem did not allow him. So that Hashem can end up showing him his true power and his true might to the very end, only after the ten makas, when Paro saw God, the undeniable power of the Eberster of Hashem in such a vivid, conspicuous, revealed way, there was no denying, then he was thinking, you know what? I can't believe I did this. I mean, if there really is a God. And, and, and. So that's when he, he had remorse. So in the end, when he let the Jewish people out, it was with tshuva. And the Eberster does not want even the wicked to die without tshuva. That's an interesting explanation. But that's the Sephardim. On this Pasuk, right in the beginning of the parsha, where it says, Vani akshas leave paro, that the Eberster hardens the heart of paro. So again, but what do you see from here? One is that paro should know. The other idea is that paro should be punished. The Lubavitcher Rebbe wants to combine these two things together. That says really interesting. He says they're not really two ideas. They're really one. Why is it really one? Because Paro's entire existence, it's not just his physical might and his physical strength. Paro's entire psychological mindset, his entire outlook on life, 
is that he had such an inflated ego. He was so full of himself, so full of his own power, that when he needs to admit that there's a power over him, that there is a godly power over him, that's a much bigger punishment even than his physical suffering. In other words, Paro seeing the Abishter's power in the world deflates his ego, his self-importance, and that is more painful to him because that negates his entire existence. See, the, 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 the you know, fact that you have a stomach ache or you have a headache or you have pimples that are itching you or lice that are itching you or whatever other things that are going on or you're thirsty or you can't move because it's dark and whatever. These are physical, but you'll, you'll get over it. But Taro could never get over his entire life, his injured ego, where he thought he's the boss over everything. He thought he's the most mighty, all-powerful being that the whole world has to bow down to him. And here he was made into a nobody, into nothing. That's his punishment. So the knowledge of Hashem is part of the... So the, the Laman Teda and the punishment are actually this one and the same. It's not two separate things. One is connected to the other. But here's a third idea, which besides an, a third concept regarding the purpose of Amakis, which is possible that we miss and we shouldn't miss. And again, all these amazing things are usually in the most simplest of places in Rashi. So Rashi, right in the beginning, when it says Vani Akshes Lev Paro, right in the beginning, here is here this Rashi. Rashi's bothered by this that the Abishter is going to harden his heart. That's cruel. Why would God do that to harden his heart? So Rashi kind of says a little bit like the Rambam that since he did something so bad and he was so wicked, and I know God says that that they, they, even if he does tshuva, it's going to be by force. It's not going to be from goodwill. If there's a chance that Paro is going to do tshuva in a sincere way, the Abishta would allow him to do tshuva. But since he's anyway only going to do tshuva because I'm going to force him, that kind of tshuva is not going to give the Abishta any pleasure, and it's not really a virtue on Paro. And the world. Therefore, Rashi says, it's worth it for me not to let him to do tshuva and beat him up all the way for what purpose? So that my honor should spread in the world and that the, my children, the Jewish people, should recognize Hashem's power. Ooh, a whole new chiddush in the Makas. It's not about Mitzrayim knowing. It's not about um, Paro's punishment. It's deeper than that. What's the purpose? Here are these words. The chaim, um, toivli, hear these words. Toivli, it is good for me. That his heart should become hardened. That I should be increased my wonders. That you, my children, the Jewish people, should know my might. So the purpose of the Makis was to show something to the Jewish people. Rashi continues, so is it is Hashem's conduct. That what? The Abishta brings punishment on the nations. That the Jewish people should hear and they should fear Hashem. Interesting idea. So Rashi is not dismissing the idea that the nations and that Paro needs to know. But primary the Makkas are for the Jewish people needing to know. Do we have any support for that in the Chumash? Um, I guess you see that right in the beginning of Parsha's boy. What does it say right in next week's Parsha? You say two reasons for the Makkas. Hashem says in the beginning of next week's parasha when he's coming to warn him on the seventh plague, the grasshoppers, the locusts, he says, Go, come to Paro because I hardened his heart. 
And why did I do that? To be, able to, 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 to be able to place my wonders on him. And then the next verse says, That you, the Jewish people, you should be able to relate to the ears of your children. That which I poked fun of Egypt. And my, and my wonders that I've done. And you will know, so there is clear an idea in the Marcus for the Jewish people to know. What's the, now, one needs to understand, I mean, why is that so vital? Why is that so vital? Obviously, you can say, because the Jewish people are now going to become God's people. So if they're going to make a commitment to Torah and mitzvot, they need to really appreciate and understand Hashem's power and Hashem's might, so that they want to be in a relationship with Him. That's on the one hand. But the idea that we have to say that the punishment of Mitzrayim was primarily or to a very great extent to display Hashem's power and might to the Jewish people that we should recognize Him is related to something much deeper and more fundamental. And that has to do with the very existence of the world. Why does the world exist? Why is there a world? So Rashi says right in the beginning of the parsha, Rashi says, Again, on simple level, not great philosophy. Rashi says right in the beginning of the Torah, Bereshis, on the first word of Torah. When it says Bereshis in the beginning, Rashi takes the word Bereshis from the Medrash, and he divides it into two words, Beis, Reishis. That when it says Bereshis, it doesn't mean in the beginning God created, it means for Reishis, Bar Elokim HaShemayim V'Sa'aretz. For Reishis, Hashem created the world, heaven and earth. Hashem created the world for the purpose of racious. What's racious? The beginning. Who is the beginning? Two things that are called beginning. Torah is called the beginning, and the Jewish people are called the beginning. Two things that are called beginning. So God, Hashem, created the entire world for the sake of Israel and for the sake of the Torah, for the sake of the Jewish people and the Torah. If that's the case, there cannot happen, there cannot be anything in the world that is not directly related to the Jewish people. Everything needs to be related to the Jewish people. It's not like, okay, Hashem had his primary interest in the Jewish people and they will do mitzvahs and so forth. And then he created a big world. And many events and many occurrences and many ideas will happen in this ginormous world, which is just part of a world. The world has its significance and it has its importance. The deeper reason that God has in the world and his ultimate satisfaction is the Jewish people keeping learning Torah and doing his mitzvahs. But there is still a significance and an importance and an existence to the rest of the world on its own. Rashi's idea, Bishvila Torah, Bishvila Yisrael, says something deeper. Every, the existence of the entire world, the existence of the 8 billion people on the planet, the existence of the 70 nations, the existence of a spaceship going out of space and going to moon and a distant, uh, what do they call it, Mars explorer going to Mars, or all these incredible scientific breakthroughs and everything that is being made and all, everything, everything. Every event that ever happened from the beginning of time to the end of time. Everything that happens in the world is directly related to the Jewish people. And we have to find its connection. So you can have your humongous wars happening between nations. 
It's connected to the Jewish people. The Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, today we're commemorating his yard site, as we mentioned earlier, writes in one of his memorim, in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. He writes in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. That the Baal Shem Tov said that the Eberster made a war between two nations that battled for seven years. A seven-year battle. Two nations. How many soldiers? How many people were, you know, imagine that. Seven-year battle. It was a lot of, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of victory, a lot of whatever. Things, massive things happened in a seven-year war. I don't know which war the Balshemta was referring to. And he says, but you should know the real purpose was because in that war, they, ha- they made up songs. They would blow trumpets and they had songs of victory. And they made a nigan out of it. And a tzaddik who was serving the Eberster in his service of God used that nigan that he took from that war and that he used in his prayer. And that's how he's connecting to the Eberster in a whole deeper level than he was able to do before because that song had a certain energy and a power and opened up his heart. And that's the reason why that whole war happened. That's the Bishvil HaToyro Bishvil Yizal. That's the nucleus of the event. Now, it sounds like the craziest thing. Come on. Could the Eberster have made the Nigin come to the Tzaddik in another way? I can't explain what the Balshemtav exactly means, why it had to be this way. But that's the way it is. Now, this, you might say, ah, it sounds like a Hasidish Torah. Is it real? Is there. Is there uh, well, the Rambam writes that. The Rambam, Maimonides, right? So even those who might not accept the Hasidic idea will have to admit to the Rambam. The Rambam in his, uh, in, in his Peter Shamashnayas, and I think he writes it elsewhere, writes an interesting idea that the Rambam writes that the ultimate, that the, the world is a, is, a, is a hierarchy. And there's like you have the inanimate, and then you have the plant, and then you have the... And then the Rambam says, then you have the human, everything is created for the human, and amongst the humans you have those who, are, those who have knowledge, and, and those who can know God, and the highest being is someone who can know Hashem. That's the highest being. And he says, everything in the world is only a preparation. So he says, some, he says and I, if so, why is it that you have people, he says, that serve God and are suffering all their life, and people that are uh, not, they could be, you know, very, very successful... So he says, oh, he says, it could be that this great, this, 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 this big king or big uh, minister or big, uh, you know, made himself a palace and lived there for, you know, and he had parties there and it was like this famous, famous place that everybody came to. And really, he says, the whole purpose of it is many, many years later, could be even 100, 200 years later when the, when the palace isn't functioning anymore and it's just leftover runes. And this tzaddik, he writes, this Maimonides writes this, is going in the forest or going through a field and he wants to daven mincha and it's getting cloudy and it might rain and he's uncomfortable. So he finds shelter in the ruins of this palace. And that's the reason Hashem put into this, the mind of this fellow to invest, you know, $10 million in building his whole fortress and his whole, or $20 million, all of this, so that this person should be able to, and that's its whole purpose. That's its nisham. It's hard for us to digest, but that's the way it is. If that's the case, there can't be anything in the world that's not related to the Jewish people. So you have to say that even though, here's an amazing thing, even though something as important as the display of Hashem's power in the world, the display of Hashem's power and might in the world is very significant and very important, but even that needs to be, so what's if God's revealed in the world? Even that needs to be elevated by the fact that the Jewish people are going to know Hashem and serve Hashem in a deeper way because of what happened. 
So everything has to ultimately, all the, in other words, there could be to a certain degree a significance in Mitzrayim doing tshuva. Mitzrayim needs to be punished. Mitzrayim is doing tshuva. The, 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 world, the world at large should see the majestic power of God. But the inner, inner, inner reason, it has to. Because since everything in this world, the Pneumius, at the inner core, is for the Bereshit, B'Shvil Yisrael, or B'Shvil HaTorah, for the sake of the Jewish people and the sake of Israel, if the Jewish people don't notice it, everybody else notices it, but the Jewish people don't notice it, it, it missed its point. Because everything is for the sake of the Jewish people and their Torah. Okay. Therefore, therefore, when it comes to the Haftorah, when we read our Haftorah, and in the Haftorah we read about this massive event, the defeat of Egypt in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And the Torah and the Navi gives specific reason, gives specific reason of why, why this event happened. The Navi says that Egypt needed to be punished for being a false hope for Israel. Nebuchadnezzar needs to be rewarded for what? Nebuchadnezzar needs to be rewarded for what? For his, for his, for his conquest of Tzor, that he wasn't rewarded yet. So even if there's an explicit reason, there is a deeper reason. There is an underlying reason. What's the underlying reason? That you have in the last Pasuk of the Haftorah. Similar to what Rashi says. And what is that? Sham atzmiach, hear these words, on that day, after everything is said and done, after all the reasons and everything we've had, on that day, atzmiach keren lebeis Yisrael, I will make sprout keren, a power to the Jewish people, and to you and to Nenavi Yecheskel, what's going to be the benefit for the Jewish people? First of all, they will know God's power, but something else that's very important. That the Jewish people should know, to you, Yecheskel, I will give you an opening of your mouth that you will have proven your prophecy. So the Ebershter goes and makes an entire massive war on Mitzrayim with Nebuchadnezzar. Who knows how many people were involved in this war? What was going on? How many years they fought? What this whole, this whole it's a world event. And for what purpose is it? The purpose is. That, the, that to prove Yechezkel's Nevoah, that people should see that Yechezkel is a Navi, that everything that you said can happen. Which is a very interesting thing. Now it's interesting, the Lubavitcher Rebbe points out that in those days, Yechezkel was known as a Navi already. He was known as a Navi. It was because his first Nevoah, there's two prophecies over here. His first Nevoah was after 10 years, and the second Nevoah was in the 27th year of his life. Not of his life, of him beginning to be a prophet. I'm not. So first was in the 10th year and one in the 20th, so 17 years later. He was known as a Navi. But not everybody believed in him as a Navi. There were some Jews who did not, they, they rejected his Navua. They didn't believe that Yechezkel was a Navi. So for these Yidden, that they too should recognize Yechezkel, Yechezkel's Navua, the Ebershter goes and turns over Sidre Bereshus, the whole world just that Yidin should know, because it's important for the Jewish people to know their Navi. Similar to what we learned in the parsh, that all these Makkas are related to the Yodu Yisrael that the Jewish people need to know. We love to learn the Torah as a once-upon-a-time once book. 
There's a story of a long time ago. We Jews are very happy when all the things that all these amazing things happen a long time ago. People get very nervous when they find out that the things that are happening a long time ago are really actually current and they're happening now, not just a long time ago. It makes us uncomfortable. The reason why it makes us uncomfortable is because then God becomes very real. And if God becomes very real, that means I have to really be a Yid. It's not just, you know, as long as, uh, you know, the once holy people, Avram, Nevi'im, this, that, everybody's comfortable. So I want to share, and I've been speaking about this in the last two classes in particularly, on Monday class, and uh, to, 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 to recognize and to illustrate a very, very, very important idea. As I mentioned already in the last few classes, we were talking about the astonishing events that are happening in the world in the last couple of years. And uh, unless someone is blind and blindfolded with seven coverings, uh, then maybe you can be unaware of what's going on. The Eibishter is spun a dreidel a couple of years ago and literally is reshaping the entire geopolitical world and in a stunning way and the interesting thing is what Jews can't like make peace with is that it's actually good for the Jews this time like we're used to always everything being bad for the Jews suddenly something happened and it's actually good for the Jews Jews are always afraid that there's something up a sleeve so it can't be so good for the Jews. You just wait, he's gonna pull something out soon, something really bad, this, that. So therefore I'd like to take everybody back 27 years ago, or 28 years ago, or actually 29 years ago. So 1991, 1991, the Lubavitcher Rebbe then spoke the entire year. And he kept on saying over and over again that the Jewish people need to know. And the whole world needs to know. You can watch it. You can watch it. This is not me just making you, telling you stories. You can watch videos of New York Times people coming by the Rebbe Sunday by dollars and different, different newspapers. And people were asking the Rebbe, what is your message about Moshiach? And the Rebbe keeps on saying to everybody, tell everybody that the Geul is about to come. Moshiach is about to happen. And uh, people need to prepare themselves. How should they prepare themselves? Through doing acts of goodness and kindness. The Rebbe called for all of humanity, not just for the Jewish people. That we should walk and tell people that they should increase in acts of goodness and kindness so that to hasten the redemption, because the redemption is about to come. And as I mentioned in the previous class, the Rebbe at that point um, pointed to the fall of communist Russia, that overnight... It was incredible when the Berlin Wall fall, when, 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 when the USSR, a revolution like that should have taken, should have costed millions of lives. Such massive change in an entire country, the entire socialist uh, communist party fell apart and without, without even any gunfire, without one, it's amazing. And the Rebbe said, that's, that's the sign of the Giyula. There's the last walls of Golis. Russia was keeping three, uh, uh, three million Jews in captivity. The fact that, that that's, a, that's, the, that's a sign of the end of the exile. And then the Rebbe pointed to the war against Saddam Hussein in the Persian Gulf War, which I discussed at great length two weeks ago in the class on Asar Batavis. And the unbelievable miracles that we had just revealed when I discussed about last week of what kind of 
horrific danger the Jewish people were at that time. Literally, the entire Am Hayoshev B'Tzion, the Jewish people living in Israel, were so close to complete annihilation through, through a chemical warfare and biological weapons that Saddam Hussein had. And he had, read, he had given instructions to launch. And until today, we have no idea why they didn't send it to Israel. And we were not prepared, even though we had gas masks. I spoke two weeks ago. We did not have the, these, these, these weapons. First of all, a third of the country did not have the gas masks. And the rest of the people did not have armor, body armor, that can protect them from these biological weapons that seep in through the skin. So literally, at that time, the Rebbe then kept on saying that that's, an, that's all a an event that is supposed to happen the year Mashiach comes. And the Rebbe kept on quoting the Al Shemayni, Shana Shamelach Mashiach Niglobai, this is what's going to happen. Fine. In the end of that year, Parsha Shoiftim, 57.5.1, you can learn that sikha, you can learn that talk. The Rebbe shocked Lubavitch, really shocked Lubavitch. Lubavitch himself started spinning, not knowing what to do. Because the Rebbe spoke on Shabbos, and he gave the Hasidim a job to do, and the Hasidim were uncomfortable with that job. Because it would make them sound like lunatics. It would make them sound like fanatics, crazy people. What did the Rebbe say? The Rebbe sat in an entire Fabregen, and, 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 and he built a case that Nevuah is supposed to come back before Mashiach comes. Prophecy. And he says that when, the, when it says in, 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 in the Gemara that there's no more prophecy, the Gemara doesn't say, there will never be prophecy. The Gemara says it stopped. But the Rebbe proves from Rambam and from different places that it's possible for it to come back anytime. Especially, the Rambam says, uh, from Agaris HaTeman, and in Pirish HaMishnayis, Ein Safik Shechazaris HaNavuah Hu Akdamas HaMashiach. Words of the Rambam. Before Mashiach comes, Navuah will return. The Rebbe goes on to explain in that talk that the Balshemtev was a prophet. When did prophecy start coming back? Through the Balshemtev. Not just the Balshemtev, the Ruach HaKodesh, he brings from the Tzemach Tzedek, that the Balshemtev had eyes and literally can physically see Arbameus Parsal, Arbameus Parsal, meaning he just physically can see for hundreds and hundreds of miles, much like a Novi, physically. So is the Magid, the Mizritcher Magid. Then he brings that Maizeda, the Shneir Zalman of Liadi, the Tzemach Tzedek, brings that his grandfather. Shamani Mimenu Nevuois, we heard from him prophecies, Koileya Elasa'oro, which means they mamish were exactly. And I'm going to speak about that. It was all, most of them were in Egea when the Alter Rebbe was ex, his Sistalkus, his, his, his passing away when he was fleeing from Napoleon. At that time, the Alter Rebbe predicted exactly what was going to happen, on which day it was going to happen. Napoleon was then going from victory to victory, and then he said at, he's going to reach until Moscow, and he's going to conquer Moscow, and after that, boom, he's going to have a horrible defeat, and he's going to fall. And, 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 and uh, in his own household, they kept on saying, Rebbe, you promised, you promised, it's not happening, you promised. And they kept on telling them, I promised. This is the way it's going to be. He even said, I swear by my tefillin. I swear by my tefillin that this is what's going to happen. So the Rebbe there builds the case that Navu is going to return. And in a very, very, if I should say, humble way that Navi, who's going to tell you that, he, that, that, uh, that, he, that uh, he's a prophet, has to speak about himself. He, he builds the case that his father-in-law, the Rebbe doesn't speak about himself much, most of the sikhs. He says, this is my shver, the Rebbe the shver, as we see, is given a novi, and he goes and he... And then he says, and these nevuas are continuing through this father-in-law's talmidim, the next generation, which is clearly speaking about himself. Then the Rebbe then told the Hasidim, 
And I'm, I, I, I'm not reading it now because I just don't want to take your time. It's a lengthy thing, but I would rec- highly recommend everybody can see this. It's not something that he said quietly to one person. He spoke for the Olul Hasidim, and he, and he had this sicha, this talk edited, and he had it printed in the Algemeiner Journal because every week they would print the sicha in the Algemeiner Journal. So he knew the certain times that he spoke certain things and that he had it edited. It was only like for the inner club or inner circle because he wanted it just to be kept quiet and only kept like Hasidim can know this. And this is not for the greater consumption of the masses. But this he said, clearly it should be printed. Not only that, he said that it's the job of the Hasidim to go out and spread to the entire world that the Eibishter Hatmemana Geven, Abbasar Vidam, Abal Bechira, these words, that he should be the Shaifit of the generation and the Navi of the generation. And that he is giving a nevuah, he's giving a nevuah, and he's speaking as a prophet. He says, and I'm saying this, this is the words, I'm not saying it Petar Chacham, like a tzaddik, and he explains, he brings a, a, a footnote, he brings from the Altareb, his, his great, great, great grandfather, how the Altareb explains the difference between saying something as a Chacham, a Chacham that's Masig, meaning a tzaddik, that uses like uh, looking in Torah and seeing certain things, and like, or saying something as a Navi. The Altareb explains that when, like, when you see, say something as a Chacham, it could be you're seeing it in the spiritual worlds, but it's not necessarily have to materialize in this concrete reality. But when a Navi talks, since the Navi is speaking it, and he's bringing it into Dibur, into this world, it must happen. So therefore the Rebbe then said, it should be in Esparsim in the whole world, that there is a Navu already, that Igiyaz Mangulascham, the time of the redemption has arrived. Um, okay. What happened afterwards? This is 1991? It's an amazing talk. Right after that, half, the, half a year later, the Rebbe had a stroke. And then he had, two years later, another stroke. And then we had Gimel Tamos. Uh... So there was a lot of darkness and a lot of questions and a lot of bewilderment. And uh, to a certain degree, um, at least a big, 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 big portion of Lubavitch uh, got uncomfortable with Bechlal with the talks of the last two years and said that Rebbe was saying, oh, we don't know how we are and when. Mashiach is here already. He's we don't know. So let's just be quiet about the whole thing and go back to the 1970s, Chabad houses, building it in the whole world, making a thing, which is, I understand. There's great bewilderment. I mean, what do you mean? You're saying Mashiach is coming, all this is happening. And what happened, as I explained in other classes, already I spoke about this in the past, that what happened immediately after that is it got very dark, very dark. It got worse. That's when they made the Oslo Accords. That's when, after that, at that period of time, during the time actually when the Rebbe was sick for two years, when the Rebbe was screaming, Chas v'sholem, Israel should not talk about one inch of land, because that itself is going to bring horrible bloodshed. And exactly like he says, so happened. Because when they made the Oslo Accords, and you had these amazing photo ops of Bill Clinton standing there with, with uh, whoever remembers that, standing over there on the White House lawn together with... Uh, uh, Yasser Arafat and um, and Rabin and that famous handshake, it was like all the all the all the people said peace at last. Can you imagine we would live to this day when we would finally see we resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Never has there been a period of so much bloodshed that followed that. If you remember, then afterwards started all the suicide bombings. Literally right after that, buses were blown up, restaurants were blown up, discos were blown up, uh, shuls were, I mean, it was horrible. The antifada that took place after that. So, Mamish, the more you give, the more. 
I don't know if anybody realized that in the last couple of months how quiet it is in Israel. Did anybody take notice? After the announcement of Jerusalem and after the announcement of the Golan Heights and after the, the, all these things that was going, and that the settlements are legal that Trump announced just a couple of, uh, couple of months ago. And after he killed Soleimani and everybody thought this would be the end of the world and who knows what, for some reason, Hezbollah, Hamas, everybody's kind of very, very quiet. It's amazing. Like everybody thought that the peace, talking about giving, because it's, because it's not true. It's not going to work. This peace, ideal of giving peace by giving pieces of Israel is not going to work because it's not what the Ebershter wants. So it's not going to work. And the Arab mentality, they don't want the Jews there. They want the Jews out of the entire Israel. So if you give them a little bit, in any case. So there was a big question, a big bewilderment for many, many years. What people don't realize is when a Navi speaks, and when a prophet speaks, you don't always see the result of the prophet's words immediately. Sometimes it's 10 years, 15 years, 25 years. So to me, it's clear an interesting thing that what has happened in the last um, three years, beginning in the year 2016, which is, I think, related to what I had spoken about, those who have been following this class from the year 5775, if you remember, I raised everybody's hopes for that year, remember? I'm going to now do a confession. I did a confession at the end of that year. I told everybody Mashiach is for sure coming in 5775. And I was building it on a mimer from the altar, telling you that the Shekhinah goes out of Gullahs. Then I extended it to 5756, if you remember. Because I said, if you quetch in the mimer, you can say it's 5756 for whatever reason. You can listen to the classes then, and we can discuss it. But now looking in hindsight, I I realize it wasn't wrong at all. The Shekhinah going out of Golos means that you can't mess with the Shekhinah anymore. You can't keep the Jewish people enslaved. You can't... So what was going on right after 57.55 and 57.56 and ultimately in 57.77, everything switched. Everything turned around. The whole world went Moshe Kapoyer. Because the entire march of the political world, of the world of all the nations in the world to try to stifle the Jewish people, to try to choke Israel, to try to force Israel into a devastating concession. So much so, as I mentioned in the previous class, that in the earlier years, when they were talking about, when they were talking about conceding or giving land to Arabs or giving them chunks of Eretz Yisrael, they wouldn't dare mention Yerushalayim because who would think that the Jewish people would do something so stupid to give peace of Jerusalem? How would you do that? But then, Takar, and the Rebbe mentions it in 57.51, Shabbos Bereshis, 57.52. In, in Shabbos Bereshis, the Rebbe then says an interesting thing. He says, we're talking so much that the Geula is coming, and Mashiach is about to happen. We're seeing all the signs in the world, denuclearization between Russia and America, various different things that are pointing to the Geula's ready to, to come. And here we see the opposite, he says, that they're actually talking, the nations in the world are making, are beginning to ask and demand for Yerushalayim. He says, to have a chutzpah. They're not just talking about uh, uh, Gaza, he says. They're not just talking about Yehuda and Shamron. He says, they're actually asking to take away the city of David HaMelech. And the Rebbe then says in the Sikha, how is it possible? So he says, you should know that this too is a sign of the Giyula. Because Dafka, when the Koyches the powers of evil in the world, realize that it's 
that they're, that they're going to be finished soon. So they put up their last fight. And therefore, they're going to try to stop Mashiach's coming by trying to take Yerushalayim. That built in the last, from 1992 until 2006, it reached stronger and stronger and stronger, and particularly under the Obama administration. And reached under the Obama administration, they were so close, so close. Because in the last few days, in the last few days of his, of his, of his presidency, what did he do? First of all, he awarded the, the Palestinians hundreds of millions of dollars. A crazy amount of money. He gave, he gave, um, he gave, he made this, he made this horrible deal with Iran that has, that has put six million Jews you realize by now, it's already three years after the deal was signed. It was signed in 2015. Wait, so it's already five years. So in five years from now, five years from now, the Iranians have no restrictions in building nuclear weapons. And with that, and no one can say a poof because they kept their deal. Imagine that. So in five years from now, the Iranians have nuclear weapons while the mullahs and while Soleimani is alive and they have the ability to do and threaten Israel with nuclear weapons. I mean, and these guys are not like, you know, the Russians that at least, you know, know that if they, if they, if they use nuclear weapons, it's going to be used against them. And they're gonna be, these guys are suicide bombers. They don't care. They don't care. That's, that's the crazy with radical Islam. You're talking about, so literally putting the entire Jewish people on threat of annihilation. And in addition to that, as I mentioned then, they had a meeting in Yerushalayim, you had a meeting in Paris, where 70 nations got together to decide the fate of Jerusalem. And if you think about it in a broader sense, you see that those that were aligning with this whole fight against Yerushalayim, against Israel, as I spoke so many times, are not just fighting Israel, the Jewish people having possession of the land, but they have a broader agenda. And the broader agenda is one of chasing God out of the world. Literally, that's what it means. A complete dismissal of all any type of religious, of a trace of, of, of an, a God conscious, of a God consciousness in this world. And we're going to replace the morals of, based on a faith of God, replace it with complete humanistic morals. And that's it, God is out the window. And therefore, it's absolutely moral that even though the Torah says that God created the human being, Zachar Unekeva, the, uh, a man and a woman. And those are the two that Hashem made. So last week I went to fill out a DMV um, uh, thing in California, and I was puzzled. It took me about 15 minutes to try to figure this out, what exactly I have to choose. I am either a male or a woman or non-binary. I was actually thinking, maybe it's not bad. I'll be non-binary. See, how stupid. No, but this is progressiveness. This means, God, we don't care about you. That's what it means. So it means there's no Abish there. It means that God's basic, there's no, there's no marriage. There's no more man and woman. It's such a destruction of the basic fabric of existence. And I'm talking also absolute permission of abortion because a woman can choose to do with her body as she wishes. No, just like you can't do, the Torah tells people certain things you could do with your body and certain things you can't do with your body. Especially when it involves another life. So we're talking about Free, a, free, a free pass on abortion, total dismissal of marriage, you marry whoever you want, whatever you want, and not, but the worst part is, it's not so much 
the question of people deciding. No one is bothering you. We're not forcing religion on anybody. But the fact, as I mentioned so many times, that someone who has a deep religious conscience, as a religious faith, and he has a bakery, he or she, and they don't want to participate and make a, a wedding uh, cake for a, for, 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 for a marriage that goes against their entire belief system, that's why they have to be, they have to be fined for thousands of dollars. That's what was going on over here. We're talking, and you realize that this would just go further and further and further and further. Now, let's just imagine, what would have happened if in 2016, um, Hillary Clinton would have won the election? Where would we have been now standing in terms of Israel? I think it would have been after already. I mean, Yerushalayim would have already been divided. East Jerusalem and the Koysal Amarabi and the Makam Amigdash would have been already completely in Palestinian land. And you think it would have been better. Well, look what happened when Ariel, Ariel Sharon already caved in. It was a chiddush that Ariel, Ariel was like the big general. Caved in and again, maybe wanted to ultimately, you know, have a different uh, a view of him, not as a hawk and uh, whatever, but as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a compassionate or, or uh, you know, a sophisticated progressive ruler or progressive leader. Went and gave, gave Gaza for the Arabs, uprooted Gush Katif, uprooted the hard work that was done by hundreds of Jews who did the miracle, the thousands of Jews did the miracle, took barren lands and turned it into an oasis. What they did over there in Gush Katif, take a look at what's now, what is it now? A churbim, a place full of tunnels. The, all the money that they got was what everybody in the world gave them, was all to build tunnels, to, to, to do the most horrific things. Right? So where would we have been standing in terms of all these all aspects of whatever we spoke about before had the miracle not have happened that happened in 2016. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's where you see that. It's interesting. Yes. It's very sad, but that's, that's, yeah, yeah. But in any case, what do we see now? An amazing thing. Suddenly the Abishter flipped everything over. Everything over. Because this, as I mentioned on this in previous, the previous classes, this was completely unexpected. No one saw this coming in the way that it came. The entire policy of the world changed and flipped over. But the question is, which I think a lot of people are not maybe connecting, is how does this relate to the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Nevuah in 1991? In other words, is this a new process? Chas v'shalom, the Rebbe's Nevuah failed. Whatever the Rebbe said failed. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing, which, which by me is the, is, 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 says a lot. After the previous Chabad, the Rebbe passed away. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak passed away. There was one year, now it's coming, his 70th yard site in Yudshvat. There was a year that there was no Rebbe in Lubavitch. This, the, 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 the Rebbe did not want to accept the leadership. He, he, he rejected it for an entire year. During that time, there were those, not everybody wanted him, some wanted his brother-in-law. There was a question, who would be the one that would be next trip? And um, his brother-in-law was Reb Shmarya Gorari, known as the Rashag. After, after, I'm not exactly sure at which point, I didn't do the exact uh, uh, research right now, but after a little while, the Rashag then conceded and not only wasn't he Rebbe, but he became a real chassid of his brother-in-law. Even though he was the older brother-in-law, he became a real devoted chassid of his younger brother-in-law. What, and when he was asked, what was it that made the change? So he said an interesting thing. 
he said that um, there are times that people come to my brother-in-law and they ask the question. And the Rebbe said, we'll go to the oil, we'll go to the tzian, and we'll ask. I'll ask the Friediger Rebbe and we'll know. So he's saying after his father-in-law passed away that he's going to go to his father-in-law and he's going to ask. And then he comes back and he gives answers based on what he asked his father-in-law. So he said as follows, he says, I, can't, I, 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 can't, I don't communicate with the previous Rebbe. After he passed away, I don't see him, I don't communicate with him. One thing about my brother-in-law is that a ligner is an isht. He's not a liar. And if he says that he's going to talk to his Rebbe de Shver and he comes back with answers, he's not making up baloney, he's not telling stories. It's inconceivable that the Rebbe would sit and tell the Jewish people and tell everybody a nevuah and he would be making baba mices. It's inconceivable. So it's Amos. There is a nevuah. Oh, so now it makes perfect sense what suddenly started happening. Everything flipped over, but in order that the Abishta wants to show us that it is related to that nevuah, it is related to the prophecy of the Rebbe. So I think there's a few amazing things that happened that are indicating where this miracle and connected to who and to what is this entire transformation. Number one is what I mentioned last week, that the whole switch, last week we spoke about Basia Basparo, and how Basi is the one who reveals Moshe Rabbeinu in the talk that we spoke last week. It's interesting that Trump's connection to the Jewish people and his big support for the Jewish people is related to an astonishing fact that his daughter is Jewish. She converted, she's Jewish. Right? She's not the biggest Rebetzin who dons mincha for three hours every day, but she's Jewish, right? And I'll be this on the simple level. He loves her with an, uh, more than all of his children. He always, you see the way he always speaks about his Zavanka. She's his everything. And she is Jewish. And she has such a deep connection to the Jewish people. And that, I'll be this on the simple level, has connected his heart. So it's interesting, as I spoke last week, that in the Rebbe Sichas, where the Rebbe suddenly, out of nowhere, says the power of, of Moshe Rabbeinu is the power of Mashiach. It's all connected to Bas Paroi. And Bas Paroi reveals reveals Moshe in the world, and incredibly, you should listen to last week's share to do that. But where I didn't mention last week is that the whole change, really, based all the, all the pollsters, everybody was saying, days before the election, it's a no-brainer. Clinton is going to completely devastate. She's gonna, she's gonna win this election, it's gonna be a landslide. Trump is gonna lose terribly. That was their predictions. What happened three days before the election, and it was, it was, it was reported, it was reported in the news, but she didn't do it for the news. It wasn't the plan, she went quietly. Matzah Shabbos, three days before the election, the election was on Tuesday, this is Matzah Shabbos. She and her husband, Jared, visited, you can watch the video, visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe's oil, and they're going to Davin for the Hatzlacha in this election. It's amazing, that was an interesting thing. Then as I pointed to you, let's take a look at a couple of dates of amazing things that happened where you see that, you know, I'm, I know there's a lot of people, and this is very important, a lot of people have a very hard time with the current president due to his being a very not elegant and eloquent and refined type of a person. 
Like I just spoke to someone this past Sunday. He was telling me, but uh, I get the way he makes fun of people, the way they feel, like, I can't, I can't, I can't land the guy. I can't. I, I understand that. Right? To me, it's unrelated to who he is because I don't see anything to do with him. It has to do with the power, the messianic power that's happening through him in this world. Of course, we need to be thankful to him. But it's not him. It's a credible transformation and a power that's taking place that they, for whatever reason, he's the shliach. And in the Rebbe's talks, and this is amazing, if you, you have to read those sikhahs, because in the Rebbe's talks of 1991 and 192, the Rebbe's talking all about the lowest things in this world being converted and becoming synchronized with Kedusha, while they're low and while they're coarse. And the Rebbe keeps on talking about Esav being transformed, which means Esav is what? Edom. Dafka, the lowest, and while it's low, it synchronizes with Kedusha and changes everything around, keeps on saying that. And that's what we're seeing. So let's take a look at, and to, in order that we should see it, and it's all connected to what I was talking about earlier, that the Eberster does everything that we should prove the words of a Navi, that the Navi should be seen. The Jewish people are oblivious. When I'm saying the Jewish people are oblivious, I mean not only is there, in, in, in Lakewood people don't know this, not only in Muncie, not only amongst Hamish Shuls, non-religious for sure, but even in Chabad, there's some, so many people that are so disconnected from this idea that the Rebbe said in Nevoah, and that we're holding an Agiyaz Mangolaz there's no way to change it. This is going to happen. And it has to happen. And it's in the middle of happening. So I just want to point a few events that happens. Incredible. So let's begin. The day that the, the, day that the, that the um, electoral college voted officially, legally, Trump to become president of the United States was the 19th of Kislev. Which the 19th of Kislev is the victory of Hasidus. It's the victory of when the light of Hasidus was introduced into the world. 2016, December 19th, you can look it up in your calendars, that's when it was officially, it became law, legal, that he's president, the next president. That's not during the, that's like about a month after the the general elections. But the legality of it happened the 19th of Kislev. A year later, on the 19th of Kislev, on 2017, here in, 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 in New York, or here in California, but in New York, it was still the afternoon of the 18th of Kislev. But in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, in Yerushalayim, it was the 19th of Kislev. That's when he announced that America recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and that the U.S. Embassy is going to be moved over there, which you see already today. Italy promised already. Italy, the ones who destroyed the base Amigdash, Rome, they made two days ago, the Prime Minister was in Israel. Yerushalayim, he says, if, not he wasn't the Prime Minister, he's the top candidate of the Conservative Party. He says, if I win, I guarantee you, we're going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and we're going to move our embassy over there. Guatemala did it, Honduras did it, um, many others. I mean, it's, it's no more taboo. That's the idea. He broke the tabooness of it. When? On the 19th of Kislev. The next amazing act that he did that shook the Jewish world also in an incredible day. Not necessarily a Chabad day, but an incredible day. Zeus Hanukkah is when he freed Rubashkin. Again, did he have a calendar knowing when these awesome days are? 
the, ninth, the eighth day of Hanukkah, 5777, and that's when he releases Lubrubashkin, which was also the closest moment that anybody felt to Mashiach, at least in the Jewish world, was at that time. It was incredible. Let's take it further. This past year, when did he announce the Golan Heights? When did he align that the Golan Heights? On Purim. On Purim, he gives a tweet on Purim that the Golan Heights is, 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 um, is, it's about time, this was his tweet, it was about time that the United States, after 52 years, recognized the Israel sovereignty over the Golan Heights. On Purim. Let's go a little further. When did he, um, um, another event not related to him directly, but astounding event that happened last year that shook the whole, that caught the attention of the whole world, was on the Rebbe's birthday, on the 11th of Nisan, the Rebbe's birthday last year, in France, Notre Dame went on, on fire. And Notre Dame is destroyed. This is the first year they did not have mass. They, immediately after the destruction of Notre Dame, they, they decided, uh, people from all over the world pledged billions of dollars to rebuild it. They just announced, and I was thinking, okay, so now this happened, but what? They just announced this year that there's a 50% chance that it has been ruined so badly that they will not ever be able to rebuild it. And I've discussed in previous classes, Notre Dame represents the old Christianity, the Christianity that believes that God disconnected from the Jewish people, unlike the evangelicals who are big supporters of Israel, the evangelicals that believe that those who bless Israel are blessed. It's a whole different world, it's a whole different Christian world. If the Christian world is going to be transformed to become elevated and, and, and be part of the Geula, this is the new Christians of the United States. The old European Christians that brought about mass murder for the Jewish people, that was represented by Notre Dame in 800 years. This is a symbol of the defeat of the, of the supremacy of Christianity. And when did it happen? On the Rebbe's birthday, and the amazing thing, that very same time, a fire broke out that was put out. That didn't didn't this? Uh, at the same time that it was Notre Dame was burning, on Temple Mount in the mosque that's on the Makam Hamigdash, a fire bur was burning there as well. It was reported at the same time. Let's continue. Chaf, chaf, chaf. This year, just another two to three ideas. This past year, Chaf Cheshvan. Chaf Cheshvan is the birthday of the of the fifth Chabad Rebbe, known as Reb Shalom Ber. Sholem Dov Ber was one of the Rabbeim who, who very strongly um, um, pushed and, and, and um, supported the Yishuv of the Jewish people in Hebron. He wanted, and he started a yeshiva, the Chabad yeshiva in Hebron. And he writes that the Chabad Rabbeim, his ancestors, had a very, very deep attachment to Hebron, more than any other place in Eretz Yisrael, and he relates it's connected to Malchus based David, because Malchus based David, David Melech first was Melech in Hebron before before he became Melech in Yerushalayim, very very strong. The Rebbe Roshav, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, was the one who established Yeshiva Tamechet Mimim, and here's the interesting thing: the Rebbe Roshav called the Bacharim of his Yeshiva Chayole based David. These are the armies, these are the soldiers of the household of David that are here to pave the way for Mashiach. This way. So in Chabad itself, the focus on Mashiach became very strong in the last three generations, starting with the Rebbe Rashab. The Friediger Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, took Mashiach to a whole new level, and 
the current Rebbe, like on a, on, a, on a level beyond, made Moshiach everything. Moshiach, Moshiach was all day. The last three generations was the main, the main push on Moshiach. On his birthday, which who celebrates birthdays? The rest of the Hasidic, the rest of the Jewish people, when you talk about a birthday, say, ah, do Jews celebrate birthdays? They don't. It's the Rebbe's thing. He wanted that Jews should celebrate birthdays. I mean, it's, it's, the Ruzhiners did it. It's an old thing. It's not, there's Makairis and Torah, but the main one who pushed birthdays. So on the Rishab's birthday, the day of Mazlai Goyver, that's when Trump made this incredible Pompeo. It wasn't Trump, but obviously it was Pompeo's announcement in which he announced that all settlements that were till now considered a, 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 the United States policy until now was that all settlements in the, in the, um, in the, in the, uh, in what they call occupied territories, um, is, should be considered illi- are, are illegal. So Pompeo made the announcement that the, it, it was such a chutzpahdig announcement because it goes against everything that the UN and the U, European Union and 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 then everybody held as sacred that you can't mess with this. What do you mean? You're legitimizing Israel as the ultimate attra- aggressor, the ultimate. They're like the Nazis of today's days. They're the ones who are. That, that's what they're presenting, and he announced that it's not an illegal. We don't, it's, meaning it's not necessarily illegal. It depends on the Israeli courts to have to look at each case, what's legal and what's not. That's huge, including Hebron. That's amazing. Then he made another announcement. This year, also on a very special day, related to the Rebbe's anniversary, Chassadadim, in which his announcement was at that time that the Jewish people are called a nation, that we have a national status, and therefore if you, if you, if you, if in a college, you, you, you are anti-Israel, you allow anti-Israel activities, it's considered anti-Semitic, you're anti-Jewish, and we can defund the colleges. That's a chutzpah that he did it, in the sense that, but you know what? The colleges that are gonna lose millions of dollars if they allow BDS to come in and do the thing, he stifled it. I mean, what he is doing is unbelievable, but it's always these incredible dates. But I wanna conclude with what's happening right now, to conclude, and just very quickly. This past Thursday, and I spoke about this on Shabbos, he made another phenomenal announcement, an executive order. What was his executive order? His executive order was that we will not, it will be illegal for anybody to interfere with anybody of any religion that wants to, in a public school or in a public place, pray or display their religion, it will be illegal for people to try to stop them. Because many children, of faith families, either Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, that were in schools and they wore either they 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 did one of the kids was saying he had ashes on his head, the other one said he she made a prayer group and the school came and said you have to do it, you can't do it on on on, on school property. So he said clear, I mean he didn't really wasn't really machadish anything, there's no real chidush over here. It's basically the rights that's part of the the, uh, the constitutional rights that a person has, but the fact that he's going to enforce it, and he says, we're not going to allow this anymore, and these were his words. He says, the government will not be allowed anymore be- to come between man and God. That's an awesome thing. The fact that the Abishter is now being permitted into all the schools, into all the public, we're not forcing anybody on religion, but you can't push God out. That's incredible. When did this happen? It's happened on the Rambam's yard site, and I discussed on Shabbos 
what's the relationship of this to the Rambam, because the Rambam is the one who says that the Jewish people are responsible for the nations of the world that they should recognize and keep the Zion mitzvahs b'nei Noach, the seven Noahide laws, which at the root of it is a belief in God, which consequentially, if you believe in God, you pray to Hashem. And I want to conclude with the last thing, which is something that is about to happen tomorrow in the Senate. Tomorrow we know that the, the, as soon as President Trump became president, everybody, I mean, a huge, a huge movement was, 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 uh, I mean, was, was, was immediately created to try to overthrow his, to delegitimize his pres presidency. And all those people couldn't believe that he won because it didn't make sense that he won. He had no credentials to win an election. And what he wanted was so shocking, it was so absurd that people couldn't swallow it. And because they couldn't swallow it, they tried whatever they can. They tried with Russian collusion, and the whole thing didn't work. So now they came up with this whole idea of he, he's in cahoots with the Ukrainians, and he, whatever, and he was trying to push Ukrainian, whatever, and therefore he's, he did an impeachable offense, offense, and therefore we're going to impeach him. Fine. The interesting thing is that it's taking place, it's the trial is starting tomorrow on the Senate, on the day of the Alter Rebbe's yard site. So I want to share just one final thought about why I feel that the whole thing is going to explode in their faces and the whole thing is, is not going to happen. And I'm also, it's also my prayer because, you know, I'm not a Navi. I can't tell you what's going to happen. I'm just telling you what my feelings are and why I think that this thing is going to fall apart. See, here's an amazing thing. The Alter Rebbe passed away at the age of 68. The Alter Rebbe was a very healthy person. And then he passed away at the age of 68 I'll be this, it was, it was an untimely passing. And why was that? He got sick. It was a freezing cold winter and he got sick. And he got sick, the, 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 his son, the Mittler Rebbe writes, because his gallbladder was damaged and all related to his bitterness and the pain and suffering that he had. And because the freezing cold winter in which he was escaping uh, throughout the winter in Russia. Why was he escaping? Because he did not, the Alter Rebbe felt that Napoleon was a very, very spiritually dangerous human being. The Alter Rebbe felt that the, that the, the, the Mittler Rebbe, the second, the, the second Chabad Rebbe writes in a letter, here's a book, everybody can check it out. It's a book called Hamasa Acharon. It's an entire book, big fat book, devoted to the last journey of the Alter Rebbe running away from Napoleon. So over here is where I got most of my history, but in here there's actually a letter, a long letter that's printed also in Sefer Igres from the, from the Mittler Rebbe, in which in this letter he writes why the Alter Rebbe couldn't stand Napoleon. And I'm just going to give you a brief one idea. He says that the Alter Rebbe believed that Napoleon is the Satan himself, Satan himself. He's the essence of evil. And he says two main things. He's a very wicked person, doesn't care about human life, and so on and so forth. But the other thing is that he's extremely arrogant and he doesn't believe in God. And he takes all of the credit for himself. All the victory is all himself. He says, Alexander, on the other hand, who is the Tsar of Russia, no friend of the Jewish people, not a big tzaddik at all, yet he's a person who has a deep belief in Hashem. And every time he goes to war, he believes that God is the one who is the behind, behind all of his successes. And therefore, the Alter Rebbe felt that there is a greater, much greater godliness and divine presence and hol not holiness, but a great presence of the Abishter and goodness in the Tsar over Napoleon. Even though, to a certain degree, Napoleon was also bringing certain freedoms to the Jewish people. 
In other words, bringing the world emancipation and freedoms. And it was also known that if Napoleon would win, there would be, the Jews would be less persecuted and there would be greater, greater, um, greater, uh, greater freedom. But the Alter Rebbe then said that when Jews would suddenly be freed with all this type of freedoms, they would be, Napoleon's energy was one, I'm not freeing you to practice religion, I'm freeing you from religion. And that's where the Lubavitcher Rebbe points out the difference between the American freedom of the United States, where it was established by pilgrims, by people who had a very strong funded faith in God, and they came here because they wanted to serve Hashem, and they established a, a, a country that serves God as opposed to one that fights God. And therefore, the Alter Rebbe didn't, he felt that Napoleon was such a dark clipper that he ran away from him. That's what he ran. He didn't want to be under his jurisdiction. So as Napoleon was coming in, he took his entire family and fled. They went like with 20 wagons. He didn't, he was scared that Napoleon, he knew Napoleon is gonna, knows, Napoleon knew that, that there's a tzaddik that's fighting him. He, Napoleon came running into Liadi, the story to, to where the Alter Rebbe's house was, and he wanted, and the Alter Rebbe instructed they should burn his house as soon as he left. Napoleon wanted something of his. He came and he asked if anybody has anything that belongs to the rabbi. And there was nothing left of his possession. It's a very interesting spiritual war that was going on. Napoleon also sensed it. There were spies. The Alter Rebbe even got involved in the war. He had spies of his Hasidim who helped, um, who helped the Tsar. He was known for many years, he was given a medal as being an important citizen who helped out in the war effort. Anyways, the Alter Rebbe ran, and he ran away Erev Rosh Chodesh Elul, the last year of his life. He escaped, he was away Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, he was told that Napoleon is coming into Moscow. The Alter Rebbe then said to his son, in the letter, he says this all. He says, I saw a vision on Rosh Hashanah that he's going to come into Moscow, but after that, he's going to fall. And remember, I said, he said, he's, he swears by his tefillin. But the main idea that he keeps on saying is that he's a terrible, terrible denier. He's an atheist. He doesn't believe in anything. And actually historians say that when he was third, he wrote it in his diary. He said, when I th I'm 13 years old, I stopped believing in religion. I stopped believing in God. And so on and so forth. The Russian soldiers, before they went into battle, would all bow down on the floor and they would cross themselves. The French soldiers in their, in their writings laugh at the Russians' belief. The French didn't have a priest that would come out militarily. And, and when the church issued a day of prayer, the church in France, to pray for Napoleon, Napoleon told them, shut up, be quiet, I don't need your prayers, he said. You're scaring the masses. That's what he told them. He believed only in the power of man and the power of the... This was his idea. Any case, there were other Hasidic rebbe's Ramendel of Riminov, one of the great Hasidic rebels who wanted Napoleon to win. It was a battle of the tzaddikim. This war was fought up there. It was an incredible war. I'm not going to go into the details. So here is an amazing statement. Hear this. One of the great Hasidic rebels, this is brought in Sefer Shemuel Vesapurim, it doesn't say who the rebbe was, said to Reb Shneir Zalman of Liadi with these words. He said, I don't, and this I think is so applicable to today, it's unbelievable. He said, I don't understand why you love the Tsar. What do you have with the Tsar? He says, Fanya. Fanya was, was what they referred to when they spoke about a Russian Gentile. They called him Fanya. Some say it was a. Uh, they so he says, Fanya is Aroitseach. He's a murderer. Fanya is a, is a Noyev. Noyev means he is an adulterer. Fanya is a Ganev. He's a thief. So what are you. So the Alter Rebbe said these words. Fonya is a roitzeach, he's a murderer. Fonya is, is, is an adulterer, he's a noyev. Fonya is a ganev. 
Oberes nicht meilem of Hashem Echod. He's not concealing the unity of God. He's not fighting God. He believes in God. And therefore, I'm going to much rather side with him than with a person whose entire being is to dismiss God from this world. So the, the, the Mittler Rebbe writes that the day that Napoleon had his final push out of Russia, he says it happened when the Alter Rebbe passed away while he was running away and, the, and the, whatever, he got very sick and then he passed away on the 24th day of Tavis. So the Mittler Rebbe writes in the end of his letter, I didn't know this till today, he writes in the end of the letter that you should know the day that my Bishas, at the time of the Estalkos, at the time of the passing, that's when there was a big defeat from Napoleon. In other words, my, my, my Zayda was a Moser Nefesh. He, he sacrificed his life to defeat this power, this Klippa in the world. And this is what he writes. He says, and I hope and I'm waiting that his complete fall, his complete fall is going to happen this year, Chavdalet Tevis. When I saw that, I couldn't believe it. I hope that the complete fall of Napoleon is going to happen this year on the yard side, because this is what he gave his life for. So I ask you, who is the spiritual ears of Napoleon in this world? The United States today is divided. It's not just the United States, it's the whole world. There is two ideologies happening in the world. One is standing beside the Jewish people. One believes in God. One has a religious faith. The other ones want to eradicate the Abishter completely from the planet. It's, and therefore, if you hate God, you hate the Jewish people, and you hate Israel, and you don't want Mashiach, so you do whatever you can. I'm not saying that everybody consciously thinks this, but I'm talking about superconscious powers that are causing a horrible divide in this country. And, it's, and, the, and, and, and sadly, the Jews, sadly, because without the Jews, nothing has power. So all the leaders of this whole fight for... for, for and, and if you think about it, you think, who, who, who are they in bed with? Who are they together with? Omar... I mean, I mean, how can even anybody even, like these are the leaders, this was becoming the whole face of the entire movement is becoming so completely absurd in terms of its animosity and its, and its hatred to anything holy. When is it taking place? When is the kind of the showdown, the final showdown? On Chav Dalatevis, where the Alter Rebbe himself was Moiser Nefesh, literally gave his life to defeat a clip, and if you're going to say, hold it, he's no tzaddik, our president, you can maybe say certain things that were said. Now, Chasashom, I don't think he's not a retzayach, and he's not a, 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 did a whole lot of good, and he's a big baltzadak, and so on and so forth. You might say that he's, uh, his, his life uh, morality, and during his life, in terms of uh, his, uh, is not so impeccable, and you had some pretty not nice uh, behaviors in his past. So what? So what? When it comes to his policy in the world, when it comes to his doings in this world, it's very messianic, I have to say. It's very, it's furthering God's plan for the world. It's not chas v'sholem moving things the other way. And the other side that's fighting him is completely trying to drag the entire world into the other direction. And so we, I give him a blessing that he should be successful. But not the success is not that only that he should come out vindicated, that the success is that let us already lead to the Geula Shalema. Let this already be, because this is really what it is. Vahoisa, the Pasik says, as I explained many times, the elevation of the mountain of Esau, which is America, is being now Lishpoit, it's being judged. Which way is America going? And what happens immediately? The Eberster's kingdom 
He has one job left. There's nothing left for him to do anymore after what he's done already, but to tell the Jewish people, go ahead and build your temple. Now let's get it done under budget. That's what I see him saying next. And I wouldn't be surprised the tweet will come out. Come on, get off that hill. It belongs to them. You all know it belongs to them. Let's just get the work done. Let's get it going. I mean, I, don't, I, I do believe that there's going to, of course, going to be a powerful revelation from above when Mashiach comes. There's going to be a... But there is a process. There is a worldly process that happens. And the process has been happening the last couple of years. It's intensifying. It's about time that we realize that when the Rebbe said many years ago, a Nevoah, he knew what he's talking about. And it's absolutely good. Every word he said is going to happen exactly like he said. And Be'ezus Hashem, of Mamish, the Ge'ula Shalema, we will see. And it's important, however, that we Jews should recognize this and understand it, speak about it, recognize it, get excited, and get more active in Torah and mitzvahs because we want to be ready and, uh, and be part of it. May we merit to see the Ge'ula Shalema now. Oh, peace, 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 oh,